Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Hey, Bible's open, Mark chapter 10. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me? Mark chapter 10. Uh, this morning, we are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse, through the gospel of Mark, which out of all the biographies in the life of Jesus is uniquely focused on the way in which Jesus lived his life. It's all about his actions. Like if someone comes to you and they're like, hey, what was Jesus like? Or if they're even you know, talking about Jesus in some assumed ways and they need a more accurate understanding of who Jesus is and what he was like, the gospel of Mark is a great place to take someone to just observe observe what we're calling the way of Jesus, how he lived. Um, and so that's what we're studying, and that's what we've been looking at. And here we are in Mark 10, and we're kind of making our way towards the end. Uh, we're past the halfway point. Once we get to the, his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and all that, that happens a bit faster as we go through the narratives. But we're not in any rush. We're, we're enjoying what the Lord's been teaching us through this book. And so, if you would, uh, stand with me uh, this morning for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to invite up uh, Brian Vidal is coming up, and he's going to lead us uh, in our scripture reading uh, here at a Mark chapter 10. All right. Join me as we read the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit, or that I may inherit, eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and, bro- and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come with eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again just for this moment, and now as we are going to turn our attention to learn from you and, and hear your word taught, we just want to heed ourselves to the, 
the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would come here, Holy Spirit, and move in power and speak to us. Pray, God, you would get me out of the way so that you can minister to and counsel your people. So, God, we, we just invite you, Jesus, to be here and to speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. Okay. So, if you've been with us, you know kind of our tradition and our, our kind of framework through the Gospel of Mark is uh, with every passage we look at, we're trying to zero in with that passage, whatever it may be, we're trying to zero in on a different aspect of the way of Jesus. Really, our study in the Gospel of Mark is a comprehensive look at all of the different ways of Jesus. Um, and we have, have looked at, at a few. Now, here in Mark 10, we are looking in this section at what we're going to call the way Jesus counseled. The way Jesus counseled. Uh, that's what we have here in this passage that we just read. We have Jesus, as Isaiah calls him, the wonderful counselor, giving wonderful counsel. It, it certainly could be understood as, as teaching, but the context here is less of a classroom and more of a counseling session. All right, now, if we're going to use that word counsel, let's stop, and as we do each week, let's make sure we define it. And dictionary.com helps us out with this one. Counsel is simply advice that's given, especially as the result of consultation. That's counsel. Counsel is advice given, especially as the result of consultation. I'm, I'm thinking immediately of golf and my golf swing and why we're having this clinic. I mentioned that guy, Patrick, who's uh, been a blessing to our church, and he's been a blessing to me. He met me at the driving range a few months ago with Judah, my son, who could swing a golf club already better than me. But he came as someone who's wiser than I in the area of golf. I consulted his advice about how to do this a little bit better. Um, that's what counsel is. It's, it's advice given, especially as a result of consultation. Uh, scripture, first of all, let me say this. Scripture encourages us to be people who seek out wise counsel. So scripture makes this assumption that you and your own counsel isn't sufficient for what you need and the wisdom that God wants you to attain in life. We get that? It's not that God won't counsel us by his spirit and his word. It's, it's all good. But here's what Proverbs says. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. There's just something. We're talking about community in a couple weeks. There's just something about the effect of community in our learning that, that does more than just kind of individual Christianity. A wise person is looking outside of themselves to get other perspectives and gain wisdom from more than just their own insight. Uh, scripture also says this in Proverbs eleven fourteen. This is a great verse. If you're in a season where you're making a big step, you're trying to navigate something, and if right now you're living according to your own counsel, if that's all you've consulted is your own advice, here's what Scripture says. It says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. He says, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So Proverbs 1 is like, if you're wise, you're going to be someone who positions yourself to receive from others. You're going to conclude that you don't have enough in and of yourself to, to lead your own life, that you need community, you need other voices. And I love it here in Proverbs 11, it's like, you need many voices. In the multitude of counsel, um, the, 
there is safety. I love that. Just a great process. If you're making a big decision, just ask yourself, have I brought this to godly counsel? Just a simple thought here. Now, that's actually the context of the passage we just read. Again, that definition of counsel, advice given, especially as a result of a consultation. Talk about a wise consultation. Talk about the right person that you're trying to seek advice from. Uh, In this passage that we read, we read of a man who goes out on the road. It's a really interesting story. We see this consultation of Jesus from this man. And notice this, he comes running. There's just, even in the pace of his approach to Jesus, there's this sense of desperation. I've got to get there. I've got to get to Jesus. It's like he sees Jesus as the only one whose counsel can really guide him where he needs to go. So he runs to Jesus. He kneels before Jesus in a posture of honor and humility. And he asks him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, another thing to say about counsel is also the the, the importance that you shouldn't just seek any counsel, right? Go get counsel. Just Google it, right? You have a a question, have an issue? Just Google it and you'll be fine. No, the scripture also warns against ungodly counsel, right? It's not just that you should have counsel, but you should make sure that the counsel you're receiving is from trustworthy sources. I can't think of a more trustworthy source for this counsel than Jesus himself. So this man is already getting a few things right. It's going to be about it for him in a second. We're going to see where he goes wrong. But he's got the right idea. He knows he needs help, and he's come to the right person. Let me just say to you today that if you have any questions about heaven and eternal life, there's no one better for you to go to than Jesus. He is the authority on eternity. He is the the, the only voice that we should heed in matters of eternity and heaven. Now, this is a really interesting display. It tells us kind of a, a simple, almost like minimal description of this guy that comes to Jesus. It just says he's this one that comes running. But if you've been in church for some time, you've gone to VBS, or honestly, if you've just been in church, I'm sure you've heard one or two sermons on the who? The rich, what? Come on, church people. Ruler, right? This is the, the, the famous rich, young ruler. Now, it's not all there in Mark, but we get a bigger picture of this individual when we look at Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, and we get a couple key um, descriptors of this individual. And I, I was, you know, as I typically do, I, for fun, made them as all ours. Okay. First thing we see is that he's a rich man. This guy's a rich man. It tells us even at the end of this passage that he has many possessions. This guy has the car. He has the number. He has the house. He's got the white picket fence. He's got it all going for him. All right. He's a rich man. He's a man of great wealth. He's also a ripe man, question mark? Who put that question mark there? All right. As in he's young. Does that work? Okay. He's at a ripe young age. And that is Matthew's gospel that tells us this about this man, that he's a young man. So he doesn't just have the resource of money. But what you see in this world is kind of the greatest value is not just money, it's time. So much so that most people are spending all of their money to get more time. How can I be younger faster and longer, right? The fountain of youth. But this guy has it going for him. He's like, a, he's like Mark Zuckerberg, you know? And he's Jewish, okay? He's rich. He's ripe. He's young. He's also a ruling man. 
That's Luke's gospel. Tells us that he's a man of authority, of position. He has youth. He has time on his side. He's got incredible resource. He's filled the bank in wealth and success. He's a man of power and authority. He's a ruling man. We don't know exactly what that means. The scripture doesn't tell us. It could mean that he was a religious ruler in the synagogue that had like um, societal position among uh, God's people. Um, it, it also could, and there might be indicators to that. He's a religious man as well. But there's also indicators that it could mean that he's just a man of great authority. Okay, he says things and it gets done. That's what it means to rule. Your word has the power to move people. All right, that's what he has. He has time, he has money, he has power, and as a good old boy, he's got some religion. He's a religious man, as we see indicated there in the passage. He's a, another R could have been a rule-keeping man. He's kept the rules. And I want you to notice what's so interesting about the profile of this individual. It's this man that comes to Jesus about eternity. This rich man, this young man, this ruling man, this religious man still feels that he's lacking in life. With all that he's accumulated, he still doesn't have eternal hope. Isn't that interesting? It's like, this is it. I mean, this is all the world has to offer. I can't think of many other markers. And yet still, with all that the world has given him, he's still longing. Teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And this reminds me of an Old Testament character who we studied a few years ago named Solomon. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you see a picture of, of someone just like this who's gained it all. He, he's had all the, all the power. He's had all the excess. He, he's, he's had all the religion that the world can throw at him, that the church can throw at him. Yet still, he's left saying it's all vanity. It's just not enough. It doesn't fill the void. It doesn't secure my hope. It, it's interesting. Even in the heart of this man, there's what Solomon says. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has made, beautiful, made everything beautiful in its time. I want you to notice this. And he's put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. This is the key verse. God has put eternity, hardwire eternity, into the heart of every human. And that's one of the greatest gifts God could give us, is for us to gain all the success in the world and be left still empty. There's no amount of money that can pay for eternal life, right? There's no amount of human power that can fix your relationship with God. There's, listen, there's not even any amount of religion that can wash your slate clean. Your, your, is that right? Your slate clean, that's the phrase. There, there's nothing that this world can provide to give us what only God can. And this man is realizing this. He goes, I have everything, but the thing I most desperately need and desire in life is eternal hope. Like, man, the hope that death isn't the end for me, the hope that I'll live with God forever, he, he's after this. Um, C.S. Lewis says this in the book Mere Christianity, and it's a quote that we have used uh, time after time here at Solus. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The one thing we have to acknowledge in this man is he does have what I would say a lot of people in our culture have even lost. It's an eternal longing. In a, in a lot of ways, what our culture has done is just completely clouded out any hope of eternal life. And it's like it's, it's hedonism at its best. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is all you have. 
But this man is, is at a really good place. He, he doesn't end up, unfortunately, there. But his starting point is, I, w- I want to encourage even you today, if, if you're here, you were brought by a friend, and you're navigating these, the things of spirituality and life, and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, can I just encourage that this is one of the best places you can find yourself? In a place that's saying, listen, I, I just want to know how to have the hope of eternal life. I want to know that God loves me and I'm going to be with him forever. That, that's such a healthy thing to have. Dana's Apple Watch is seeking permission to connect. Do you have a, a TV remote? TV remote? Is Dana even here? Oh, hey, Dana. What's up, buddy? <laughs> I believe you didn't do it intentionally, okay? That's one of the best men I know. Okay, awesome. Beautiful. <laughs> I mean, Dana, you can come preach, man. It's fine, dude. <laughs> We get the idea, we get the heartbeat here. This man is exhibiting what we, what we honestly should all, we should all have. And, and it's one of the gifts God can give is to have it all and realize in life that it's not enough. And this man comes to Jesus under that idea. There's got to be more to this life. And he comes to Jesus with this important question of what can I do to attain that eternal life? Um, now, it's in light of this question that Jesus is going to counsel this young man and his disciples on, a, on three specific topics. Jesus goes on to give counsel. You can write this down. He gives counsel on these three big ideas, especially as they relate to eternity in the context. But Jesus then counsels this man as he seeks Jesus' advice. Like, I, I want eternal life. This, this world isn't enough. What, how do I get that? Jesus then gives his advice, and he gives it in the form of three things, goodness, Jesus gives counsel on greed, and then he gives counsel on what we'll call guarantees. Three things that Jesus gives his counsel on as it relates to eternity. Goodness, greed, and guarantees. The first thing that Jesus gives counsel on as this man comes to him, longing for eternal hope, is Jesus gives counsel on goodness. Human goodness. Another word for this could be righteousness. Human goodness. This is like the main theme of the first few verses. Notice, as the man comes to Jesus, again, he says, good teacher, right? Now, in that culture, it was customary to greet a person of honor with flattery. It's one of the ways you could respect them is you could flatter them. And you could give them some, you know, sir, honorable Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. And so he comes up and he goes, good teacher. And just from there, Jesus is is genius, Jesus is then able to, from that statement, begin to build off of this guy's own understanding of what's good. It's really interesting. This guy has a framework of goodness. He's just kind of used the word to define Jesus, maybe not really sure of who Jesus really was or if he was good or not. He is. Okay. And then he's going to kind of define why he himself thinks that he's even good. Jesus is going to, is going to kind of test uh, this man's idea an understanding of goodness. Jesus replies and he says this. Here's the first thing Jesus says. He says, why do you call me good? You, you called me good. Why do you call me good? And that's an important question. And this is, by the way, often how Jesus responds to questions. Have you noticed this? He often responds with a question to get at the deeper issue. And Jesus replies and says, why are you calling me good? What's your own understanding of goodness? And then Jesus deposits a theological concept. He says, no one is good but one that is God. So so right here, we have Jesus' own understanding of goodness. If you want to know what goodness is, just look at God. That's what Jesus says. 
Jesus says, God is the embodiment of goodness. This is a scriptural promise that we need to always come back to. Um, God is only always good. If you grew up in church, you know this phrase, that God is good all the time and all the time. And that could be one of those religious uh, routines that we recite. But this is true to God's core. When God reveals his glory to Moses, what he tells Moses is, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you. This is who God is. In his very bones, he's good. In 1 John 1, John says this, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's another way to understand this. That God is not mostly good, but you got to be careful because there's kind of this motive that's a little bad. Like it's like us, you know what I'm saying? We have some capacity for good, but, but there's these black spots on our character. There's these cracks in our motives. There, there's always, as good as that person that you think of is like the goodest, there's some flaw. There's some error in their heart and motives. There, there's some darkness, but not with God. I love this. God is light, and one translation says, and there are no block, black spots on him whatsoever. There's not a single splotch or spot of darkness. He is altogether only light. Goodness like we could have never imagined. Jesus makes this claim to this individual. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. And I just want to say that here what Jesus is saying about himself is essentially to this guy, do you know who you're talking to? I think that's what he's saying. You call me good. There's only one who's good. Do you know who I am? Do you know what goodness is? Do you know who God is? Now, now Jesus then continues to build off of this guy's understanding of goodness. Jesus is going to counsel him. Jesus says to him, as we read, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witnesses. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, even in the way that this man posed the question to Jesus... He, he, has, he asked this question, what must, what, I do? What good teacher? You're good. I'm probably good. We're all good. It's all good, okay? What, must, what good things, I'm capable of being good enough, what can I do to inherit eternal life? So you see what Jesus is working with, this guy's concept of goodness. And Jesus goes, well, you, you know the commandments. Have you, have, you know, have you been a good religious boy? Have you kept all the rules like a good old boy? You didn't see the rated R movie, okay, you know? All the different constructs we create, goodness, some definition. In that culture, of course, here Jesus, he, he cites to this man this, what's called the second table of the Ten Commandments. It's the last six. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The second six, or the last six of the Ten Commandments, the second table, have to do with our relationship with our neighbor and the neighborhood here of, of the earth, those other people here on earth. And that's what Jesus cites to this man. This is, we're going to come back. This is really interesting. Okay, you want to be good enough? Well, have you, have you kept these rules? Jesus asked him. Now, there are two directions that this man could look to answer this question. He, he could look honestly within his heart, which is what the law reveals, which is the true nature of our hearts. The law exists as a tutor to show me that I need a savior. I might be able to keep these rules with my behavior, but my heart deceives me and my heart is far from God and the thoughts that I think, I mean, he could look that way and be honest and go, yeah, I haven't done that perfectly. Or instead, what he could do is look at his religious behavior 
and kind of judge if he's been good enough. And unfortunately, that's what he does. He says this to Jesus. He says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I've been a good old boy, Jesus. Compared to them, okay, I'm pretty good. That's his idea. I imagine he's going in his mind, he's thinking to himself, you know, I've never cheated on my wife or, or, or any individual I've been with. I've never, never killed anybody. There's a lot of people in this world that have killed people. I'm not one of them. I'm on God's good side, right? I've never stolen anything, you know, big, right? You know, like I've never robbed a bank, all right? I'm good. I, you know, I give lost wallets back when I find them, okay? I'm a pretty good person. False witness, I'm, a, I'm mostly a truthful person. I mean, yeah, I've told some white lies, but who hasn't, right? And then Jesus, it's interesting, one of the questions he asked him is, do you remember this? Jesus said, do not defraud. This is really interesting that Jesus uses this word. This is not the word used in the original Ten Commandments. In the original Ten Commandments, it's the word do not covet. Jesus knows something about how this guy made his money, okay? He's like, for you, it's more than covetousness. Your covetousness has led you to fraudulent, shady business deals. The guy's like, I've, no, I've kept that from my youth. I'm a good man. I'm a fair man. I pay my workers well, okay? This is honest money. And then lastly, we'll have you honor your father and mother. And I'm sure he's like, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a mama's boy. <laughs> you know, I'm a good old boy. I've done all the rules. Now, I want us to notice here, when he replies this way to Jesus, what he's saying is, according to my own standard of goodness, and Jesus, according to your own standard of goodness, I'm good. And if that's the things that I need to do to inherit eternal life, and let me say this, a lot of people think this way. Like the way that I just described how a lot of people think about their own goodness is the same way. And it's usually in comparison to other people. Like, am I good enough to go to heaven? Well, I'm not as bad as my neighbor or my uncle. Not like him, okay? Or I'm not as bad as, as this friend that I have. They, you know, like I need Jesus, but they really need Jesus. Like these kind of thinkings. Where you just think to yourself, like, I'm good enough comparatively. And that's the way that this man is thinking about eternal life. Yeah, I've sinned, but hopefully when I get to heaven, my good will outweigh my bad. And Jesus will say, well, you know, well done, good enough, faithful servant, come on in. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't say to this man, well, you've kept all the rules. You're good. You know, pun intended, you're good. You're good, and you're good for heaven. You're, you're set. Notice what Jesus says. Then, and I want you to notice his heart, too. Jesus looking at him. This is really sweet to see this. It says Jesus loved him. So Jesus isn't frustrated with him, seeing him as some like religious enemy. We talked about this last week. Jesus sees him as a casualty of really broken thinking, of religiously conditioned thinking. And Jesus looks at him with compassion. He loves this young man. And Jesus says to him, okay, you've kept all the rules. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and, and follow me. Now, I, I think Jesus is doing two things at once here. On, on one hand, let me say this. Jesus is testing his own understanding about his own goodness. 
Um, and Jesus often does this, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came into a culture where there's like two kinds of people. There's the, those that keep all the rules and they're the good ones and those that don't keep the rules and they're the bad ones. And, and Jesus came on the scene to share that at the heart of the law, every person has sinned and falls short of God's goodness. Uh, as Paul will go on to say, there's no one good. So, so Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And the rich young ruler and the Pharisees are like, boom, done. I've done that. Ben done that, all right? And Jesus says, well, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And they're all like, why'd you say that? Why'd you say that, Jesus? Okay. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. And they're like, I've never, these hands, innocent. No blood in these hands. I've never killed anyone. Which, by the way, like, good for you, okay? I haven't killed anyone. You shouldn't, okay? Don't do that. That doesn't make you special in the eyes of God, right? Um, and Jesus goes, well, okay, you may not have committed murder, but have you ever been angry at your brother without a cause? Have you ever hated someone in your heart? You've committed murder in your heart. Okay, you've kept all the rules, but that doesn't make you good. You see, the root issue, Jesus taught the root issue is the heart is sinful. And everything in our lives flow from, from that place of our hearts not being as they should. And Jesus, it's interesting, he could have done that, couldn't he? Like with this guy, as he's got his standard of goodness, I mean, Jesus could have been like, well, you've heard it said, don't covet, but do you remember, did you notice I said, don't defraud? Like Jesus could have gone there, but instead what he does is he gets into the heart of every commandment he just listed. Those six commandments are all about what? Loving your neighbor. Jesus says, okay, if, if you're such a neighbor-loving rule keeper, Here's a, here's a great way for you to love your neighbor. Use your money to help others. Sell your possessions and use that money to bless others. And there is some indication that this guy has severely failed to do that. Whether passively, like he's just been greedy and not helped people as a result. Um, I think that would be generous. It seems like it's like even farther on the other end where this man has been like unloving with money. And so he's fallen short of that standard, and that's what he comes face-to-face -to, -face to with Jesus. And this is a theme that you see, especially throughout the New Testament. Paul is someone who really elaborates on this theology and this idea, because Paul was a lot like this rich young ruler. He was a little older, but he was a ruler, and he was religious, and he had possession, and he had power and cultural uh, status. And, and Paul actually says about himself that before Jesus, when he looked at the law and he looked at his life, he was like, I'm blameless. I, I've done it. I've kept the rules. I measure up perfectly. Uh, that was up until, here's what happened. Paul went from comparing his life to his neighbor to comparing his goodness to the goodness of God. And when, you, when your standard of goodness moves from you being better than them, but you see who God is and who he made you to be and how much you and I have fallen short of that, your view begins to change. And Paul, I mean, Paul hammers this. If you, wanna, if you want more on this, by the way, read the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Book of Romans, chapters 1 through 3, it, it's Paul, first thing he does is he goes to town on the pagans, okay? Just for fun. I'm going go to go to town on the pagans. And Paul lists those that have denied God's existence to live in perverse ways. They've removed themselves from accountability so that they can have some sort of clear conscience to do whatever they want. And as Paul is describing how judgment's coming for them, that, that God can't be mocked, that, that there's judgment, that God is going to reveal, 
You imagine like all the religious people are in the corner, all the people in the church that are like, yeah, the world, the pagans, you know? Get them, God! Like all these like really, really like sad people that are excited about that stuff, that don't want people to be saved and, and repent and come to Jesus. And so Paul then like turns to them and they're like, hey, Paul. And Paul goes, let me ask you, you who teach another, do you not commit the same things? And then Paul creates the standard for the religious person. He goes, here's how you get to heaven. you got to do good. Do enough good in truth in your heart. But if you don't, he says in Romans 2, what's coming is wrath and judgment. And then Paul goes on to give what is the clearest understanding of this in Romans 3. He says, there's no one who understands. Here's the truth. There's no one who seeks after God. They've all turned aside from the rich young ruler to every person in this room. We've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Here's what scripture has to say about our goodness. Paul goes on to say, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. This is another way of saying, if you are spending your life trying to be good enough for God, trying to be good enough for eternity, you're wasting energy. You're wasting time. You're wasting love. Trying to measure up to some standard that, that you never will. By, the de- by good deeds, no person is gonna, is gonna be able to go before God in heaven one day and measure up to this standard. God doesn't go, oh, what? I've never seen a saint like you before. You know what? I was wrong about humans. Come in here. Get in here. No, Paul says it clearly. We've all fallen short. That's what he goes on to say. So, so what then do we need? Well, we need exactly what God gave us in Christ. God gave us an alternative way to relate to God. Isn't that good news? God gave you a new way to have hope for heaven than your own performance. God gave his own son, the own goodness of the son of God, the lamb of God, spotless and blameless, who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus goes to the cross and he becomes our badness. He he lived a perfectly good life, but here's the gospel. You can either try to measure up in your own goodness or you could see the cross as the only solution for your sin where God takes the sinless one and he makes him a sinful one so that you and I who are sinful, we can become righteous through Jesus. That's good news. That's good news that says stop trying to perform and just receive the good news of the gospel. Look to Jesus as your hope. Trust in the goodness of Jesus as the means through which you get to access heaven one day. And that's the promise. I mean, someone comes to you and says, I want to go to heaven. What do I need to do? Right? What a great question. And by the way, as a church, we should be equipped to answer them. You know what we don't tell them? Clean up your act. Get better, do more, try harder. We say, listen, you don't have to do anything because it's already been done. Look at Jesus who goes to the cross. In fact, here's what you need to do. Trust in him. That's what you need to do. I think of the Philippian jailer who said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And, And Paul's response is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust, not in your own performance, but in the performance of Jesus and the sufficiency of the cross to pay for your sin 
and to provide for you the righteousness of Jesus. That's what Paul says. He says, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are like the rich young ruler standing before God. We have fallen short of God's standard of goodness, but we, through Christ, are, look at this, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? Do you know what the gospel means for you personally? Like, we could sit here all day long and just theologizing about, about God and the cross, but how, listen, how are you relating to God right now? What's in your heart before him? There's two options. Listen, let me say it this way. There's two options. You either come before God with your goodness or you come before God with his good news. And we as a church, we want to continue to be those that dive deeper into the finished work of the cross as the source of our identity. We're not here to do better and try harder so that we can somehow manipulate God's favor over our lives. We're those that come to... Here's, here is the default heart of somebody who's been impacted by the gospel. They come before God with nothing but just thanks. God, thank you. Thank you. I've got, God, I've got nothing. I'm poor in spirit. Jesus says, well... Yours is the kingdom of God then. Yours is the kingdom of God. You, you know, what's really interesting about Mark in this passage is this man comes to Jesus right after Jesus says this. We just read this. Right after Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is talking about children. Remember this? Jesus is like, here's, here's how you get the kingdom of God. Here's eternal life. Be like a little kid. Be like a little, how, you know how much money kids have in their bank accounts? They don't have bank accounts. They just, they're dependent on someone else. They come with empty hands. They're, they're not capable to provide them for themselves and, and to get ahead. Jesus goes, and what, what a contrast between Jesus goes, you want, the, you want to enter the kingdom of God, just come like a child, Receive the good news of the gospel. Live from a place of gratitude. And the contrast of this rich young ruler that's coming full of himself. Full of his performance. Full of his rap sheet. Full of his scorecard. It's two ways. The goodness of God. Or your own goodness and your own performance. We're definitely finishing this sermon. The next thing. Jesus, and we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Jesus gives counsel also on greed. I think this is the second thing that Jesus is up to. In, in making a bold exhortation to this individual. So by, by telling this man to sell what he has and gives it, give it to the poor, he, what he's doing is he's exposing this guy's, the reality of what's true in his heart, that he can never, he can never measure up. He needs a savior. But I want, I want to also point out the fact that when this, I've done a lot of evangelism training youth missions trips and such. In all my years of evangelism training, if a kid were to come to me and say, hey, you know, Pastor Andrew, if someone comes up to me and says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What I've given them looks nothing like what Jesus responds with. Well, if, you know, we're going to be on the mission field and we're gonna, people are going to come, how do I go to heaven? And if they say, how, you know, how do I go to heaven? You know, tell them to sell everything. Everything they have. Yeah, everything. And then take the proceeds of that money and give it to the poor. 
Oh, and also take up a cross, you're going to die. Like, die to self and follow Jesus. Let's pray, you know? It's like, this is interesting. In some ways, it can almost contradict what we just talked about. We were talking all about justification by faith, right? But there's another key component of faith that Jesus is tapping into, and it's a word called repentance. This man comes to Jesus longing for eternal life, and though there is some sense of genuine desire, this man's understanding of God and Jesus is, you know, I just, you know, I have my money, I have my idols, I have my life, and I, I want to know, Jesus, how can I just add Jesus to what I already got going on? Like, I got my life, and it's my life. Not this whole cross thing, give up my life. But here's my life, and I've got all these drawers. Got my financial life. Got my personal life. Got my social life. And you just kind of go through it. And I, you know, I need a spiritual life. That drawer's been lacking. I got to get some eternal life into my drawer. That's his mindset. And, and this is... This is evidence from the fact that Jesus just looks on at this guy in his mindset. And Jesus just loves him. Jesus, I almost imagine Jesus loving him with tears in his eyes because he sees how lost this guy is and how bound he is to the idols of his heart. And Jesus is looking on and, and Jesus doesn't just say, hey, say this prayer and repeat after me. He doesn't say that. Because he knows that for this guy to just recite some prayer of salvation without actually surrendering his heart to the one true and living God and still living bound by idols, it's a work in futility. You know, some people have criticized kind of the extreme faith movement, and they've called it um, easy believism. You ever heard of this? Well, it's like, well, if you get up and go forward, you have eternal life. You're set. Did you pray the prayer? Did you do the abracadabra thing? Now, don't get me wrong. In your bulletin is a prayer of faith and repentance. But I just want to say that Jesus, listen, when he calls us to salvation, he doesn't just simply call us to add him to our lives. He calls us to, to this recognition that my life is nothing without him. And I need him not just in my life, but at the center of my life. And he'll, when he calls you, what he will do is he'll look at the things in your life. He does this to me all the time. He'll point at the thing that your heart is worshiping. He, see, he wants your heart. And he'll look at the thing that actually has your heart, that's keeping you from giving him your heart, and he'll say, because I love you, that's keeping you from me. That's what he does here. He doesn't just allow this man to add Jesus to eternity to his life. Listen, the gospel will call us to give up everything as we come to Jesus. We trust him by faith, but that faith in its deepest sense looks like repenting from whatever else I've been trusting in. And with this case, you know, this man is so disturbed by Jesus' invitation, it's, it's really sad that the scriptures tell us that he is sad at what Jesus says here and he walks away sorrowful. I mean, this just shows at the end of the day, whatever his desire for eternity was, it's like when he did the math in his mind, as great as he found Jesus to be, he wasn't worth giving up his idols for. That's a sad place to be. Especially when Jesus has loved you enough to point it out, right? So he walks away sad because here's the truth. He had idols. He loved his possessions because his God was money. And Jesus touches on that. His disciples are looking on and Jesus says this. It's really interesting. Um, Jesus says, to his disciples, he says, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? 
The disciples are astonished that Jesus says this. They're like, we know a lot of rich people. Are they not going to be able to make it? Jesus specifies, how hard is it for those, and here's where he gets at, those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's easier, which, by the way, this is impossible, and the disciples conclude that. I'm not sure if you've ever tried this experiment. I don't recommend it. But it's easier for a camel, it's a large animal, to go through the eye of a needle, that's a small entry point, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Do you see this? So Jesus is looking on at this man, and he, and he makes an observation about money and riches. And really, it's idols. But, but really what idols are, are just blessings from God that we turn into God, aren't they? John Calvin said, the, the human heart is an idol factory. It makes idols out of anything and everything, especially the blessings of God. Especially God's blessings. And Jesus looks on at this man's idol and the power it has over his life and how it's actually preventing him from coming to Jesus. And for him, it's riches. You know, you've probably heard the illustration before, but um, money in and of itself, like having wealth, in and of itself, it's not evil. Of course not. Um, money, money's a lot like this rock right here. You know, I just got a rock up here. It's totally casual and normal, but... This, uh, this rock, see how perfectly how it's like slanted and shaped like that? This is the door jam for our ministry center office. It sits right out front. There's a bunch of other lesser, inferior rocks. This is the best rock that's there. Just the way it's shaped. God, I feel, chiseled this rock for my door. and That's weird. But, um, you know, it sits right outside of our ministry center. When we're bringing stuff in and out, we just prop the door open with it. No, in and of itself, this is, not, this is like money. It's not, a, it's not an evil thing. It, it depends on whose hand it's in. In my hand, okay, it's, it's just a door jam. It's just a tool. But in the wrong hands, and God, we pray for just the safety and the, the protection of our ministry center. But in the wrong hands, this could bust a window. This can hurt someone. See, money is the same way. Money in and of itself, it's, it, the danger is not in money. The danger is in our hearts. And, and whether it's money or something else, the danger is, is in our proclivity to be drawn away from God after idols. The pull that it has, the power it has. And Jesus goes, especially for riches, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous place to be. If you've got a lot of wealth, Jesus is like, just says, just be careful. Because there's a certain pull that money can have on the heart to where you start trusting in money rather than God. And, 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 this, and the, the author of, of Proverbs 30 said the same thing. He said, this is a great prayer. He says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that I need lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He's like, God, just please, give me just, I just want to be content with, ju I just need enough. I need to pay the bills. I, don't make me, I love this, so poor that I end up stealing, you know? It's like, you don't have to steal. You could, you know, get a job. But, but like, and then he goes, also God, don't make me so, this is interesting. God, don't, don't give me so much lest, I deny you or forget you and say, who's the Lord? I forgot about the Lord because I don't need to depend on the Lord because I got money. And that's doing it for me. And, and here, even, even the author here is saying, he recognizes the pull and the danger of our heart towards trusting in money. And I'll, I'll close with this. I'll invite the band to come up as we close. But this is what Paul says. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to trust in uncertain riches. They're not as certain as you think you are. As fast as they come, they can go. 
He says, but trust in the living God, the living God, not some dead idol, whatever that is, but trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. You see this? See the connection even to Mark 10? It's all about eternity. It's all about making sure that in my heart, Jesus said this, he said, watch out for greed. Jesus said that. He said all kinds of greed. Watch out for it. I think it's important that he says watch out for it because it's like, Greed is not like other sins that, like, it's obvious you're committing them. Like, oh, I didn't know you weren't my wife. Like, what? What is this? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I, I just lied? No, greed is this kind of thing that we all, we tend to think of them as the greedy ones. Watch out for them. They're the idolaters. I don't have enough money to be greedy. That's the mindset. Jesus goes, no, watch out. Greed comes in all sorts of different forms. Here should be our heart posture. Here's how Jesus counsels us. He says, just come to God as someone that says, Lord, none of these things can satisfy me the way that you do. And I know my heart's tendency, which is to trust in the things of this world. But I I so believe in you, Jesus. I so trust in you that I'm giving you my whole heart. I'm turning from these idols to trust in you, the living God. That's where life is found. This is how Jesus counsels us. Now, if we had more time, which we do not, we would talk about the guarantees for those who have given up their life for Jesus. And, you know, you could read all about it in the other verses that we didn't get to study. Uh, But I want us to close here this morning with the song that we came in on, which is a song that is centered around the goodness of God. And I just think that it's like, where, where should we finally reset here before we go out? And I just, I just feel like the best place for us to just center our minds right now in light of God's word is not on our goodness, but the goodness of God. I just want to remind you that God is good. And he's not just good far away up there, but he's good in your life. He's good to you. He's been good to you. Every good and perfect gift has come from him. There's no spot of darkness on him. I don't know what you've been walking through. Maybe what you just need today is just a reminder of his goodness. Maybe you're that person that's been so hyper-obsessed with your performance trying to measure up to your own standard of goodness and today you just need to come back to the good news of Jesus. That God is not obsessed with your goodness like you are. He's obsessed with your heart before him like a child that says, God, give me what I need in you. 